going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Back in the friendly confines of 770 CHQR HQ. Glad to be with you on this Thursday afternoon. Hope all is well is uh, hope all is well with you and yours. There we go. I don't know what it was. Woke up this morning with a kink in my neck and my voice is half gone and I don't know what the heck happened. Nanton took all of it out of me. That, that's what Patrick just said. You just because just you went to Nanton. Great, great opportunity to uh, go out and highlight one of the communities in and around the city. And we're going to be doing that again next Wednesday, again in Turner Valley. And then the following Wednesday in Airdrie and hope you were able to gain a little bit of insight into uh, some of the things that are percolating in the minds of those outside city limits. Before we get into, we're going to talk pipelines right off the bat uh, on the show today uh, with Richard Masson from the school of public policy. But one of the topics that came up after the show, and I wanted to revisit the conversation that I had with a young man by the name of Morgan and Morgan wanted to, he actually stuck it through, through most of the show when he was, uh, weirdly enough, he comes up to me and says, actually, are you Garth's kid? And I said, yeah, he says, I've done some trucking for your dad. Uh, as it turns out, he's a very well-spoken young man. But one of the things that he said is we, he does some trucking and, and it's, uh, with an outfit of about seven trucks. And he says, the carbon tax has cost that company $25,000. And he says, that's just on a small crew. Imagine if you got 50 trucks or 100 trucks. It's a lot of money that could go towards replacing some tires. Or that's, you know, half, if, if you're paying a, a shop for, foreman 50 grand a year, that's half of a year's worth of salary for somebody. That all of a sudden, it's an expense that you weren't planning on a year and a half ago. And so that it's, that's been a real big point of contention. And he said, you know, as much as a lot of people want to say, I don't want to get too political about things. That was one of the big sticking points. And even chatting with uh, Jen Hanley, the mayor and Nanton yesterday is that was an expense that a lot of these small towns and small businesses, when it first came into effect, nobody was ready for. And so they've been playing catch up ever since. Hopefully some of these companies have been able to, to figure it out, but it's still a, po- a point of contention for a lot of people. And just wanted to share that story because I thought it was a really, really, uh, it really gave you that dollar figure sense of just how uh, how big a small, uh, uh, small business can be affected by the carbon tax. And beyond that, it's affecting you as everyday Albertans and Calgarians as well, because especially in the trucking business, you're moving product from one place to another. If it's costing more for that company to get that product from one place to another, well, it's going to cost you down the line, the trickle down, right? So if you're sitting there complaining about the price of the block, and the one that I've been going on lately has been a block of cheese. When did that become $15? And then you realize that, oh yeah, between minimum wage for the groceries, uh, for the grocery store, be paying somebody to be stocking the shelves to the cost for trucking that in, the production value, all that kind of thing down the line. All of a sudden, math isn't so hard anymore. Again, just a little bit of food for thought following yesterday's great, uh, great show from Nanton. Again, a big thank you to the Bomber Museum and everyone who stopped by to say hi and uh, make sure they, they took in, as one of my buddies said as he walked in, I get to see the magic of radio. 
Unfortunately, there is, it's not as magical as you'd think, but it's still a lot of fun to uh, to get out of the office. So with that being said, it's nice to be back uh, back here at HQ. All right, we are going to get into uh, the topic of conversation being pipelines through the course of uh, the show or all the shows today. We've had a, a little bit of a focus on pipelines, and but there's been a lot to dive into politically. A lot of people throwing mud. Hey, the conservatives didn't get this done. And hey, the liberals didn't get this done. And the NDP didn't get this done. Okay, time to bring it down a notch. Time to give us a little bit of context. Richard Masson from the School of Public Policy is going to be joining us in just a couple of minutes to give us a little bit of a history lesson, but also to figure out where we might be going. That's next here on Calgary Today. All right, let's fire into this one. Uh, It is a point of contention for a lot of people across the political spectrum because we don't know who was in charge of what or it's it's blurring the lines. And so I wanted to bring a little bit more clarity into the picture. Uh, Richard Masson is an an executive fellow. There we go at the University of Calgary's School of Public Policy. He joins us now. Richard, thanks so much for the time today. Great to be here. Can you help us? dive through the noise that has been going on through this provincial election surrounding pipelines maybe go back i'll I'll use the last decade maybe is what has been built here in canada what do we have and what are we still waiting on approvals for well if we want to go back and look at the big picture you know we had a a wave of development in the oil sands over the last decade Um, you know it was obviously great times lots of jobs and uh, lots of new projects coming on stream as that was happening oil sands projects take about five six seven years to build so we knew that we needed to build more pipeline capacity so the first proposal was northern gateway um, which would have taken oil from edmonton to prince rupert Um, the second you know we had uh, keystone xl Uh, we also had the trans mountain expansion we had the energy east project which was a million barrel a day project to take oil from edmonton all the way to st john new brunswick um, and so we've had, an, and also Enbridge's uh, expansion of its Line 3. Mm-hmm. So we've had lots of different proposals put in place over the years, um, but none of them have been built. And it's it's really frustrated the industry because uh, the oil that has come on stream as these projects were completed doesn't get good prices and now has to be curtailed because there's not enough transportation. There's the question that always comes up, depending on which political stripe you happen to have, is, oh, there have there were no pipelines built over the last decade when the Harper government was in place, and that's simply incorrect. That's true. There's been, you know, within Alberta, quite a number of pipelines built. Um, the original Keystone pipeline was constructed. Uh, line 9 was reversed in eastern Canada. Uh, so there have been, you know, things done, but some of the big um, pipelines that we wanted to get done have been stalled for a, a variety of different reasons. What kinds of capacity are we talking about with, especially those four big ones that you mentioned? Uh, how how integral would that be to uh, getting flow out of this province? So if we start on the west, uh, going to um, Burnaby, the Trans Mountain expansion would add 600,000 barrels a day to the existing 300,000 barrel a day pipeline. So it would become a 900,000 barrel a day system. And that's the shortest line gets us to um, tide water, which means we can get a world price for the oil. Then we look at uh, Keystone XL. That's about a 800,000 barrel a day expansion that takes our oil from 
Hardesty down to the U.S. Gulf Coast. Enbridge's uh, Line 3 replacement is, is taking oil from the Hardesty region down into uh, northern U.S., and it adds about 370,000 barrels a day of capacity. And of course, uh, Northern Gateway and and Energy East are essentially dead. Mm-hmm. When you look at the rail capacity that's been added, what is that dollar? What is that barrel number? So we've added a, probably the ability to load uh, 800,000 barrels a day in Western Canada. We did that about three years ago when the differentials were very wide, but it never got used very much because we found a way to get the pipelines uh, to ship most of the oil that we needed. So, so rail capacity, loading capacity existed, but there wasn't enough cars or engines to allow it all to happen. Last year, when differentials got very wide and so the price of bitumen was very low, it made sense to ship it by rail. And so uh, companies geared up to do that, and we've reached a peak of about 350,000 barrels a day uh, in December, January timeframe. It dropped off a little bit in February, but it's expected to grow again as we move through the summer, maybe towards five or 600,000 barrels a day by the end of this year. When it comes to overall capacity versus price and finding that happy medium, I suppose, because that's the big aspect of of things is you're going to obviously pump more out when the price is higher, correct? You will. If you're a company, you have that choice to try and uh, maximize your production or do you want to do maintenance or things like that? Can you drill incremental wells? How do you manage your reservoir? So there's lots of things that companies do. You know, they manage storage and tanks and in, in caverns. So there's lots of things they do to try and manage price. And there's producers who do that. And there's also a group of companies, midstream companies, who um, market oil. So they buy and sell and try and make money by storing it and shipping it. So it's a very complex integrated market. And, uh, you know, the price signals um, are sometimes not obvious how, how companies will respond to them. Mm-hmm. From, a, uh, from a political standpoint, then, is, and I've talked to a number of people saying that it's not as easy as saying, okay, we can have another government in place and that'll fix the problem, whether it's for jobs or pipelines. And just based off of what you're saying here is you'd echo that sentiment is that there's a lot more at play than just saying, hey, we can turn the taps on just based off of a governmental change, one whether it's provincial or federal. The biggest challenge, of course, is that those big export pipelines are beyond Alberta's jurisdiction. They're, you know, federal jurisdiction or U.S. government jurisdiction. And not only, you know, the government um, policy matters, but how the courts interpret the government's policies and laws matter. So even if the federal government is on board to see the Trans Mountain expansion happen, it doesn't mean it will if there's a number of court challenges that delay the whole process. So it's a very, you know, complex system because we have many checks and balances in the system and sometimes uh, folks use those to their advantage um, which frustrates uh, producers and lots of others Uh, but it it means that you know changing the government in Alberta isn't a quick fix to it it's it's a process we have to work our way through Mm -hmm. and you bring up another interesting note on that front is the the court challenges that come up through these and how far along are we in some of these? I mean, everybody kind of goes, okay, we're got, we got to be getting close to that Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion being all the way through. How close are we there? Well, I would say we're closer. So what happened last uh, year was the Federal Court of Appeals said the 
scoping of the project wasn't correct in that we didn't bring in the marine impacts of the pipeline, so what the tankers might mean to marine traffic in uh, the Salish Sea in particular. Um, And the federal government hadn't done enough consultation with Indigenous peoples. The federal government went back and had the National Energy Board look at the marine impacts. There had already been a great deal of study, so, so the NEB included that now in a revised report. They recommended to the federal government, to the cabinet, that that pipeline be approved based on the further work that they did. And so that's, you know, science-based recommendation. Now the federal government has been consulting with Indigenous peoples. That Now that they have the, the revised NEB report, they'll be able to continue and conclude their consultation, assuming that is uh, something that the federal cabinet wants to um, still approve the project then we're probably months away from that happening. But it's hard to tell because consultation isn't something that is easy to set a deadline to. Well, and and that was going to be my next question was, what is enough for consultation? Because there's that question that always lingers whenever that question does come up about that is, when is enough enough? Or when when is it too much in a sense? And is that all at the whim of a court or who's who kind of determines whether it's enough or not enough well and that's really it is at the court's discretion because they're like the referee in the game and so the federal court of appeal said the uh, consultation that the federal government had done on the last trans mountain decision was inadequate and they said they could do some focused consultation and meet the threshold that would be required so now it's up to the federal government to do that. It's not 100% clear what that is, um, but the federal government has um, brought on board some um, serious players to make sure that they do the best they can. Um, so if that consultation piece goes through okay, very likely there will be another court challenge by groups who don't want to see the pipeline go through. Mm-hmm. But if the federal government has done it with a proper uh, perspective, open mind, all those kind of questions, then they're likely to get through that court challenge. However, it could take a long time, you know, months or years to see how long that court challenge plays out. Mm -hmm. I wonder, Richard, if there is, I'll call it a happy medium, where you don't want to be in that situation where you're counting down the clock like a kid in class because you know you have to do three hours and you're through two and a half hours and you're tired and you want to go home. But the flip side, you could go on for hours upon hours at a time and it might not still be enough in the eyes of a jury, for example. So is there a happy medium to be reached there? Well, you know, it's interesting because um, uh, Kinder Morgan, who was in charge of the Trans Mountain expansion, did a great deal of consultation as part of their application process, and that was deemed adequate by the court. So there was no issue with what the company did. It was what the federal government did afterwards that um, the court found fault with. Right. So there, we still are not clear yet because we haven't seen a big uh, pipeline approval get all the way approved. So hopefully they'll get it right this time, but we won't know until it, it you know, probably gets tested in court again if they did get it right. Mm-hmm. So it is a very challenging thing because it's a moving target and we're, we're still defining it. And it's one of the things that leads to a great deal of uncertainty for investors who want to uh, invest in that pipeline and for all the companies who are relying on it to get 
better prices for their production. Yeah, and you don't want to come up with some sort of limit on those consultations. Like, hey, we're, we need you to do three hours because that just makes people, you know, just like a classroom, right? You're sitting there looking at the clock going, okay, is this thing over with, right? On, at the same time, you're kind of guessing as to you don't necessarily have a hard out. So you're kind of sitting there at the end of the day going, all right, we're five hours into this. Is this enough? And to your point, is it becomes kind of goalpost moving that way. Yeah, and for the federal government, we know that there's no right of veto for Indigenous groups. So it's, it's you know, some groups may say that they're opposed and they're never going to get on board. They don't have a right of veto. What you need to do is go and consult with them in a way that hears their concerns, listens, um, and try try to adapt to their concerns if it's at all possible, and then hope that, you know, if it gets tested in court, you've done everything required to meet the meet the threshold. It's a great conversation, Richard. I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Not a problem. Enjoyed talking to you. No doubt about it, the world is most definitely changing, especially when it comes to the world of technology. And I know that makes a few people skittish. Like, I don't know, even in the radio business, I look back uh, when I first started back in 2005 and I look at what we had as a website and I go, you had some, I think we had some bios. Uh, we, you couldn't listen online live. You had a, a bit of a playlist that was updated once a day. And that was about it. And now everything seems to be online. And when you look at it from the standpoint of whether you're going to the local grocery store, you can now order things online and get it delivered right to your door. You've got supermarket or you've got um, restaurants with skip the dishes, that kind of thing. You now are entering into this realm of possible AI and AR. And so it makes one wonder, where is Calgary going to be placing itself in the future for this? Yesterday... Calgary Economic Development, along with the Information and Communications Technology Council, released this report about the tech and digital skills gap that applies here in Calgary and launched an online platform to for workers, professionals, employers as well to tap into things. Joining us now on the program is Jeanette Sutherland. She's the manager of Workforce and Productivity at the Calgary Economic Development. Uh, Jeanette, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you very much for having me. This is a fascinating one because we always talk about uh, the idea of getting the workforce to adapt to the current economy and the current situation. And this idea of Calgary's digital future has come up. And today or yesterday, you guys made a pretty big announcement. And talk a little bit about uh, what this all entails. Yeah, well, you know, with the nature of jobs changing globally uh, with technological advances, industries requiring different skill sets. So. We recognize that we really have to understand where the gaps are are in our workforce and how we can help, um, in particular right now, those displaced oil and gas professionals get back out to work. So we did a a, um, skills gap survey and of 180 um, participants for employers, different employers across all sectors. And what we found out was the most in-demand technical occupations for Calgary. Um, and what we ended up doing is creating a report that um, shares all those in-demand skill sets, but also starts to show a vision for these displaced workers as to how to crosswalk to these new opportunities, essentially creating a bridge. So we've heard from the, the job seekers that they know they're starting to hear what skill sets are starting to, starting to become required and 
why they need to get there, but they don't know how. Where is the local training available? How do they actually cross that bridge to get those opportunities? So essentially, this platform was developed with ICTC Canada um, to create a vision again of how those individuals can walk to these new opportunities and uh, hopefully um, connect with employers. We'll get to that vision in a second, but I'm curious, were there any trends or anything that really stood out to you as you went through this report and tried to show where we're at in the current state? Yeah, well, we're, what, we're, what we've learned is um, jobs and technology are outpacing uh, all other jobs by six to one. And so there's huge opportunity in Calgary. But again, this isn't a local issue. This is a global issue. And as we're trying to to increase the digital literacy um, in Calgary, we want to be the best, have the best talent in Canada. And even though we have a strong STEM-educated workforce uh, with a, with technical skill sets, we need new digital competencies. And so the goal here is to identify what those new digital uh, competencies are and where those new opportunities are and have individuals recognize that they may not have to take a five-year program to get back out to to pivot into these new careers. Um, In many cases, it might be a two-month course. It might be a six-month course. But there's lots of opportunity, um, and many of them have relative skill sets about maybe 55% relative to these new opportunities. So by helping them upskill, we're helping to provide a bit of a service to get them out quicker. It's almost a refining by the sounds of it rather than a full-scale redevelopment. It's almost a, hey, you're, you're on your way. You just need that extra little push to get you to the job that is awaiting you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is why we started with the oil and gas professionals, uh, the geophysicists, the, the engineers, because we, we don't want to lose that talent base from our, our community. Um, and we know that the value they bring to our community. So I think that, that by helping them just kind of with the upskill or a little bit of reskill uh, to get back out there, uh, they'll, the, the individuals provide uh, even additional value and it helps create a more adaptable workforce that's prepared to pivot into these new into the new digital economy. So then the question becomes, are those resources available here or is this just simply a matter of, hey, you might be able to do this online and get everything done uh, in the from the comfort of your own home? You know, in some in some capacities, um, they can do some of the online training, and for some of these skill sets, they will need to to take additional training, maybe at one of the local institutions. Um, and in many cases, some sometimes that can be at night or can be on the weekends. But the value for for those type of programs is many of them have a work integrated learning um, capacity. So that individuals actually come out and they can say, here's where, here's the skill sets I've learned and here's how I've applied those skill sets. And that's what a lot of employers are looking for is, is really that applied skill sets. It's not always just the credentials anymore. Mm-hmm. Now it's more those hard skills that they've, they've learned and what type of projects that they worked on. So by giving them working to create learning opportunities, employers um, are helping to create a stronger workforce for us. I'm curious, you mentioned the work or the employers, and I'm wondering if they have a role to play in all of this as well in terms of instead of, hey, we got to make cuts here when things go sideways, we can figure out how to make sure our workforce stays with us by and also providing them some, uh, some kind of training that will allow them to move up the chain of command uh, during those rough times. A hundred percent. I 
completely agree with you. Part of the purpose for this wasn't just for the job seeker, but but it was just it was also for the employers um, to help them see a vision that wow, these individuals do have maybe a sixty five percent match, and there is local training um, nearby that that we can get these individuals into our organization quicker. We you know it it's become a retention issue for companies that to help them stay here that we have that relevant talent in place, but it's also impacting our attraction of getting companies here. And we have to, again, it's impacting all sectors. So we really can't move fast enough. We know this is just one step up as part of a broader um, strategy under the, the talent pillar for the economic strategy. But we have to move forward. And by keeping this talent in our workforce, I think it's going to help strengthen our economy. And, um, you know, it's, we're, we're quite excited about, about um, this work that we've done with ICTC and are really looking forward to taking this to the next level. What should we all be taking away from uh, the conversations that we've been having? Yeah, I, you know, I think, I think it's, the more we, we start talking about this and what some of those demand opportunities are, I think more individuals are going to be less afraid of, of embracing these uh, new jobs or, you know, going after this training. I think a lot of people think tech is just, you know, a big bang theory type of, of uh skill set and oh I'm not that of uh, that mindset but but quite frankly um, digital competencies are going to be impacting every level every sector of our of our uh, economy and um, from blue collar to white collar so by by starting that transition and, and starting to take the training um, you become aware of it and familiar with some of the terminology and I think that's what a lot of employers are looking for employers are saying to us now that they want that individual who's committed to lifelong learning and can tell me how they've applied the skill sets and you know it's not just it's not credentials that they're necessarily focusing on anymore not that that's not important but they're looking for for individuals who are adaptable and just they know that with the digital economy, you have to make sure that your skills are up to date all the time. And so that, that they want to see that the people are trying and taking these, these classes. And you mentioned something there that really piqued my interest is a sense of being afraid. I think a lot of people look at it and hear the word tech and go, I don't want to be stuck behind a computer for eight hours a day. That's not what this is about, is it? Absolutely not. And, and I, was, I was one of those people, to be honest with you. But I'm, I'm really excited about where things are heading and, and the opportunities that are starting to open up in, in, in our economy, even in our city. You know, we're starting to see more uh, tech cluster development and autonomous systems and, and internet of, uh, industrial Internet of Things and VR, AR and artificial mm-hmm. intelligence. So to see all that opportunity, it's really important to, to get excited about it and not be afraid of it because, um, you know, it's that fear that's going to hold us back. And I think, you know, you just have to start putting yourself out there and, and start attending some of these sessions and you'll start to become more comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Jeanette, I do appreciate the time and the insight today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Jeanette Sutherland over at Calgary Economic Development joining us here on Calgary today as we talk about the digital future of Calgary and what it might look like, and especially given that I think that, as she pointed out, that there are a lot of really good, skilled workers in the oil and gas sector here in Calgary and here in Alberta that have 65 or 70 or 75 percent of the skill set needed to move into one of these jobs. And all we need is to bridge that gap somehow. And if it's a matter of, as she said, whether it's a six week program or a six month program that 
comes at a low cost. Why wouldn't an employer go, hey, we'll foot this in effort to keep you on, especially if we know you're going to be a good worker? You know, that's that's the takeaway that I take away from it. And and again, I I struggle with the idea of being stuck in the in the mud and going, I'm not changing. I think this is a fad. I had a boss tell me once that social media was going to be a fad. Facebook was going to be a fad. Twitter fad. Yeah, that boss was certainly wrong. No longer works in media either. But again, it goes to that point of if you think that your bread and butter is the way that it's going to be forever and ever, yeah, you're you're pretty short sighted that way. And so it's it's fascin it'll be fascinating to see how things develop in this city as we go further and further down this technological evolution that I get the feeling is only just beginning. One of the policies that has come under fire is the UCP's education platform. And not only the uh, idea of what the GSA issue that's been brought up and talked about ad nauseum, but hidden behind there has been a lot of other conversations, and one in particular around standardized tests for not only grade threes, bringing them back, but also for grade one and two. And it makes me wonder, what do the professionals have to say about putting kids under pressure at that young of an age, for a test. Joining us now, clinical psychologist, Dr. Wendy Froberg. Uh, doctor, thanks so much for the time today. You're welcome. Is this a good thing or a bad thing in your books? Well, I think you've made a very valid point about kids feeling under pressure. Um, when, when children are six and seven years old, um, you know, they're still very much learning about the world. Um, and what's really important for them is, is their natural way of communication through play, um, learning how to socialize and just learning the structure of, of school, of, you know, how to, how to sort of learn the ropes and, and manage things. And so to, uh, stick the pressure of a standardized test with a lot of adults, you know, indicating that it's very, very important can be over, overwhelming to children. I certainly have had many children in my practice facing their first test in grade three, just worrying about it, um, in September, knowing they don't have to write it till mm-hmm. June, but going, I have to write that PAT this year. Yeah, and, and one of the things that comes to mind is is that was the reason why they got rid of the grade three exams in the first place was they felt like there there was no benefit to it. And they did shift it over to uh, a different kind of um, standard, I guess, in, in that way. But is there any value to having those tests at that young of an age, given that we are talking, you know, the math and the fundamentals that they need to set them uh, set their course later on in life? Exactly. Well, I think what we're turning more and more to something called evidence-based practice, That's the which one. basically says, yeah, unless we can show that, you know, this data, getting collecting this data early, actually turns into something significant in the long run, then otherwise, if we do, if it doesn't, then we're we're kind of measuring for the sake of measuring. And people can really love measuring, but the question is, are you measuring something meaningful in terms of a predictive ability, that kind of thing? Um, and I find kids thinking, um, you know, uh, we know there's a very um, important cognitive shift um, around age six and seven, which is grade one and two, uh, where kids are just really learning to see the world in a very different way. And so you're going to get a lot of uneven abilities. And I don't know that kids are really in a, it's, it's great to compare themselves to one another, which is what a normatively based test will do. So, yeah, I think we have to be really careful to not measure for the sake of measuring. 
And then beyond that is even though it might be looked at as a standard uh, setter for teachers and getting to know whether they are actually doing the teaching, that might not necessarily resonate in the mind of the kids. Exactly. The kids, you know, I've, I've even used that tactic with children, saying, you know, they're really just measuring how the teachers are doing, you know, that the teachers are getting the curriculum across, and the kids kind of look at me like, no, it's a test. And, you know, we children are going to have many, many tests over the course of their academic career, and so I think we need to teach them how to approach test-taking and not feel that, you know, their whole life is, is on the line. And, you know, when you're six and seven years old, as I say, you should be, you know, playing and learning how to share your snack um, mm. more and more importantly than taking a standardized test that as i say may not have any predictive validity at all dr froberg i do appreciate the time this afternoon as always you're welcome hands up if you trust your neighbors hands up if you even know your neighbors that's what i thought there's there might be a few of you going i couldn't tell you. I know that I see them once in a while, but I've never actually talked to them. Which is why when I read this piece by Judith Timpson, it's entitled How We Learn to Trust Each Other Again. I had to read it with fascination because I feel like we don't trust each other enough. Maybe there's a reason to that. Judith, Judith joins us now in the program. Thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure. Let me turn the headline around on you and go, how do we learn to trust each other again despite the times? Well, I I mean, I think one of the things we have to look at is not leaving it to the politicians. And by that, I mean, not the old joke about I don't vote for politicians. It only encourages them. But these debates are so important that we have to do them in a different way. And yet every time we've already seen in the state, there's a tremendous um, ideological divide. And I'm, I, just, I just really hope we don't go that route. We're already halfway there. But maybe the idea is not to talk politics with our neighbors, but to get to know them first. For example, projects, not politics. And I am drawing my inspiration from um, conservative columnist in the New York Times, David Brooks, who's who's um, been spearheading this project called Project Weave for the Aspen Institute. And he's looking at people who weave the social fabric in all these communities. And what he's saying is these are people who heal. They They don't harm. So why don't you first start by finding out who your neighbor is? Tell the story of your street. Even if it's a condo, tell the story of your condo. You'll just, obviously you'll find people you disagree with, but it's still more compelling than automatically going into a polarized debate. It amazes me is how few people want to have that conversation because, I, and I know I get it that life is busy. You got to get little Johnny to hockey and Sally to dance or vice versa for that matter, or you got everything else going on in your life. But even a five minute conversation opens up a world of doors. Yeah, then you don't have to pry. And, you know, one of the things we found out are we live in Toronto's Danforth neighborhood. So we had a mass killing and a mass uh, shooting in the neighborhood mm-hmm. last summer in which two young women died. And I, I participated in the vigil. And I afterwards I had a neighbor. I know I know I've known her better in the past than I did. As we were walking home from the vigil, I said, come on, let me buy you a drink. We went to a neighborhood cafe and we just sat and talked. And it was so refreshing. It wasn't that we focused on politics, but what we didn't do was say, okay, we've done our public bit. Let's walk away from any private moment where we could actually connect. And I think more and more we're going to have to do that. The only thing I would say publicly is there can't be lying and there can't be hate. Mm -hmm. And anyone who cannot abide by those two simple precepts 
is just part of a huge problem. Do you There's, agree? I agree completely. And part of the, the the thinking behind that is you don't if you don't open up at some point, then you're bound to uh, they'll you're bound to lose that connection eventually well, down yeah, the line. Yeah. And we're really wedded to our screens. All of us are. You know, mm-hmm. for example, I mean, I get jokes, too. Why don't I ever pick up my phone? Well, if I consider someone phoning me a home invasion, what do I think if someone knocks on the door? <laughs> and, you know, we're lucky. We, My husband and I and our, brought up our kids in the same name. We, we, we've been very lucky in being in the same downtown, very mixed Toronto neighborhood for years. And we've seen the neighborhood change in good ways. And we've seen the neighborhood um, get a little bit too gentrified in, in terms of what the houses are worth. But what we do know is that people do want to connect on levels other than politics. They sure, they're not going to change their politics. If you're, if you're passionately conservative, talking to a liberal neighbor isn't going to make you immediately change, nor should it. But what it's going to make you do is understand people a bit more. I was just going to say is the other thing that I, I think we get away from with the the uh, online conversations, the Twitters and the Facebooks of the world is you lose a lot of context that way. You don't get the body language. You don't get that eye to eye understanding. And so it becomes really easy to uh, off play someone who has an opposite viewpoint in life. It sure does. And you characterize them and you say, okay, I know how they feel. And, you know, Twitter is the worst for that, even though I'm on it, too, as a journalist. Um, It's so limited in what people actually say to put it into the context of their lives. And there are so many gotcha moments. It's all gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So go and talk to someone. I mean, I have to do it more, too, because I don't, you know, there's a lot of people. I assume that that what they're saying is what they believe. And I don't I don't um, chase them down and say, well, do you really mean this? But in the meantime, there are all these wonderful projects you can get involved in. There's also talking to your neighbors about something else. There's, there's again, proximity. How do you know, you know, for example, uh, marriage equality. You know why that took off so well? Because people actually realized they had so many gay members in their families, in their community, in their neighborhood, in their extended network. And they, they scratched their heads and finally said, well, why should I, if I'm straight? Why should I be able to marry, but nobody who's different than I am has that right? And it became something, I mean, this is how I felt. I mean, I didn't feel like that because I supported it all along, but I felt that people were changing because they understood. They understood each other on it. Before we continue our discussion with Judith Timpson here on her piece entitled How We Learn to Trust Each Other Again, uh, one good text in here saying maybe if people stopped being controlled by their emotions... I'm concerned that people feel that our government is our social arbiter. There is a point to that, right? Like it, it's like we're being told, "Hey, we got to feel this way. We got to be angry about this thing." Do you? I, I'm not trying to say yes, or I'm not trying to say no, but I, I'd like to think rational thinking will ultimately take over at the end of the day. This is all that whole mission of civilized coming back all over again. Uh, Judith, is there something? to that especially when it comes to those neighborly discussions we all kind of want to just keep it sort of civil and i think that's almost what a lot of people want despite what they're not seeing on a political scale oh yeah and you know david brooks whose book is coming out in a couple of weeks so he should be or maybe three should be really interesting on this subject so mm-hmm. maybe you can get him uh, maybe you can interview him i think but, you might have you know, a point there <laughs> yeah and you know the idea is is that he said 
he's encountering what he calls, and America is much more extreme, America's modern Pearl Harbors are the are the thousands, the hundreds of thousands of deaths by opiate addiction mm-hmm. and suicide. And he's going out and talking to people in so much pain about, you know, how do they find common ground? And, uh, you know, it's it's fascinating. And, you know, we can't look always to political leadership to save us emotionally or to even make us more tolerant. We have to do the work ourselves. Absolutely. One other question I had for you is how do you get over that hump of thinking or worrying that, hey, the neighbor, I don't want to get to know him because it's kind of a transient neighborhood or we all know that they're going to be moving out to something bigger and better two years down the road. I mean, that that obviously plays in a lot of people's minds, too. Well, you know, you can take a neighbor thing as a metaphor, too. You can say someone on your street somewhere, but you don't have to. It's not that you're trying to become best friends with someone, but you're not in your own silo always. And there's all sorts of ways. people. There's so many community projects that nobody even knows about. And it's fascinating to me that, you know, if you go out on the street and ask three people if they're doing anything on your street to help others, you'll get incredible answers. Absolutely. Love the love the piece there, Judith. And uh, I'll post thanks it up on my Twitter at Calgary today if you want to check that out. Judith, thanks so much for the time today. You're very welcome. Uh, it is one of those conversations. And we were, uh, my board operator, Brian, and I were chatting during the, the news there about this very topic and how we kind of get, I'll call it overblown, whether it's the, the Twitter sphere and the social media sphere. It might be that we're, and I kind of, I, I side on this side of it, which is social media is kind of exposing us for who we are is it, to a certain extent. I think it allows us to get into that uh, super emotional state of mind without actually having real discussions with real people there. It's funny is when you go back to this election campaign here in Alberta is those who are adamantly NDP are saying, we're talking about GSAs, and that is it. That is all. And then on the UCP side, you have those who are saying, when we knock on doors, the only thing we're hearing about is the economy. I actually think it's a it's a happy medium because when I actually do go and talk to people, and, and granted, I have my own circle of friends, but they come from a wide variety of, of political backgrounds, some very much apathetic. They're just like, I just want to know who's going to run this province good. Or well, sorry, good's not great grammar there. I just want to know who's going to... And, and so <laughs> what's been funny is during the course of the show, I'll get these texts like, who do I vote for? Because I'm not hearing anything of what these guys have been focusing so much on their own echo chambers. And I think that's where it starts is having those conversations with your neighbors to get full understandings of where they're coming from, you don't necessarily have to agree with them. You don't necessarily have to endorse what they're saying, but at the very least you get out of your echo chambers and you have a full understanding of what the world is actually like. Anyways, a little bit of a rant there. Scalgary today on 770 CHQR. A lot of people showed up for a rally for Gay Straight Alliances in Edmonton yesterday. The focus now shifts to here in Calgary. Marta Loop is where it's all starting and it'll end at Doug Schweitzer's campaign office. Joining us now, covering the story for Global News is Jill Croteau. Jill, thanks for joining us. 
My pleasure, Joe. Paint us a little bit of a picture as to uh, the number of people there so far and, and where are you guys at? Well, there's certainly a couple hundred people. We're just on the southeast corner of the Safeway parking lot uh, within the community of Marta Loop. And, I mean, these hundreds have shown up in support of gay-straight alliances. They came here with signs, you know, saying this mom supports GSAs. They have their rainbow flags and their transgender flags. I mean, they're really here as allies, as people within the LGBTQ spectrum themselves. And a lot of people are just here to say, you know what, we support GSAs as they are, and we don't want Jason Kenney and his United Conservative Party to roll back something that they have long fought for. And that's something that uh, I was wondering if it, if it was more politically motivated than anything is based off of what uh, the UCP did uh, talk about earlier on in the week. Yeah, it is absolutely in absolute response to that um, because I mean they have they've had rallies in support of GSAs a year ago and and you know when the Education Act was amended they felt like that was a victory and they feel you know I was speaking to a lot of them today and I'm like How, why are you here you know does this feel like kind of deja vu <laughs> a little bit mm-hmm. and a lot of them say you know it's quite exhausting and the impact is really quite troubling to a community that in its own right has been fragile at some points. Um, you know, I, I talked to a, one of the uh, frontline workers um, who sees folks within the LGBTQ community and supports them. And she was saying that the number has exponentially increased kids coming to her in crisis. Um, and this is just in the last week alone. Um, so they're feeling really scared. Um, and this divisiveness politically, uh, once again, has really got them in a situation that is uncomfortable. And obviously they're looking to send a message ending the, the march at Doug Schweitzer's office. But I'm wondering, is there any politicos out there? Are there any on the, from the other parties there? Of course, of course. They came out here to show their stripes, too. Um, you know, Greg Clark uh, with the Alberta Party, his constituency office is just around the corner. It's actually um, pretty much within the same complex um, as Doug Schweitzer's office. Um, Joe Cece is here. There are other um, NDPers here in support. And um, about a half an hour ago, um, Doug Schweitzer's office released a statement, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of, countering and and wanting to respond to some of these uh, rally supporters and saying that he is an advocate for the LGBTQ community and wholeheartedly supports GSAs and rejecting these mandatory notifications of parents. But he does say that he is committed with his UCP candidates uh, and the colleagues, and uh, he says he's fighting for Alberta to have the strongest legal protections for GSAs in the country. You'll be able to hear more about this story in the Global News at 6 here on 770 CHQR. Jill, thanks for the update. My pleasure. Thanks, Joe. Now, just a a little question that I had, and I I threw it up on Twitter earlier today, is I am curious in all of this discussion is, and I've said this on the show before, is I wonder why this was brought up again. Like, there's just a general curiosity about it because I everybody knows this was a, a PR battle that the UCP was not going to win. And so why would you bring it back up? But even beyond that, there became the next question in my head, which really is how many complaints have actually been filed with the current legislation? Because I would assume that would be what prompted the UCP to say they would revert back to the old legislation in the first place. It's not a this isn't a political issue. I'm just I'm I'm curious about the substantial substantiality of bringing it back up again and why. Because, again, this isn't something that the, the public is going to sit there and go, 
yay, this is a big win. So I, I don't understand the thought processes, but again, I'm open to hearing about it. It's Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. Thanks so much for listening to the Calgary Today podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, and tune in. When you do, don't forget to write the show and leave a comment. Until next time, my friends. 